rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Hear now God's Word. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Three in one and one in three. God is an eternal trinity of three persons existing in a perfect communion of love. This is a theme that I have mentioned recently on a number of occasions. Uh, And we understand that as the trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in this eternal communion of love, that part of their eternal plan was to expand that communion, and they did so in creation. Man was created male and female after the image of God in order to indeed expand this communion of love to reflect Him and to glorify Him. Therefore, unity was primary from eternity and was central to the creation of the cosmos. But of course, sin brought division. It wrecked the unity. It tore it apart. It caused separation. It disrupted the communion of love. Thus, at the heart of God's work of redemption, the heart of the gospel, is the restoration of unity, of communion. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays in John chapter 17 for his disciples, and certainly we are his disciples He says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, kept through your name, through those who you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. That's what Jesus prayed for, that we would be one, that we would have this unity with Him and with the Father, with the Spirit. The Apostle Paul, in advancing this call for unity, he says in chapter 4 here that we are to endeavor, work, to keep the unity, which would imply right off the bat that that's not going to be easy because we still have remaining sin. We're still selfish. We're still divided in many, many ways, and this is a call that we work hard as the people of God, as a church, to maintain the unity. And he writes in this passage, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk, to live. When the Bible says walk, it's talking about how you live, how you move through life. To walk in a manner, in a way that's worthy of the calling with which you were called. You were called to be sons of God. To be like your heavenly Father. That's the calling. And you're to walk, you're to live in such a way that reflects, that you understand what that means and the value of it. And to do so with lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, 
bearing with one another in love, and again, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Everything should be built around this overarching goal. That was true for the church at Ephesus, and that's true for this church. The last couple of sermons have expounded upon verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Just as your body and your spirit can't be separated or divided without there being death, the same is true for the church. And so God takes people who were dead in their trespasses and sins, as we read in chapter 2 of Ephesians, and he goes on to say, He made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God has gathered, taken a bunch of dead people and resurrected them and given them life in Christ and brought them together in Christ. And so he, he, uh, he took this disparate group of people, dead people, separated people, and called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a very dramatic thing. Who were without God and without hope in the world, he called us to the same hope, to the same destination. And so the Holy Spirit does his initial work of resurrecting us from the dead, and then he brings us uh, to a place where he begins to do his sanctifying work. He starts to root out the sin, to mature us, to grow us, to bring us more and more together to be more like Christ. And so he conforms us more to the image of his Son, or as Paul will write in verse 13 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect, or we would say, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal, for you to be like Jesus, for me to be like Jesus. God began that work, and He is still continuing that work in you and me. That's why we're sitting here today, to worship Him together, to sit under His Word together, for the Spirit of God to be at work here on our church, but also in each of us individually to bring us together, to point us in the same direction. And so, we have seen how the Holy Spirit works to accomplish this unity or communion, and I want us to look briefly this morning at the rest of this passage and see how the Son and the Father also work to bring unity to the church. Paul is enumerating these things in this passage. He's just giving us a list of ways that God is bringing about this unity. And again, I'll call you back to the beginning of the sermon. The Trinity is a unity, a tri-unity. He expands that in creation. Sin disrupts it. Now the gospel, the good news is, he's putting it back together. One Lord, he says. Since the church is one body, it follows that we should want to know who is the head of that body? Bodies don't function without heads. And of course, the answer is that Jesus Christ himself is the head of the church. If we're to pursue and maintain the unity of the church, then it will be necessary for our eyes to be fixed upon Jesus, for him to be, if you will, directing the traffic. 
for him to be calling the shots. He's the Lord. He's the boss. He's the head. And so, this will mean that we will need to be instructed in sound doctrine regarding both the person and the work of Christ. We need to know who Jesus is. We need to know what Jesus has done. He is both unique and exclusive. There is only one Lord, not many. And He is Lord. He's not one among many lords. He is the Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That, that Greek word there for only begotten is the, is the word monogene, which means unique or one of a kind. There has never been anyone in the world like Him, and there never will be. In Him was life, and this life was the light of men. That can't be said of anyone else. What this means is that Christ, the person Christ, and Christ alone, is what we would call Christianity. It's not simply, Christianity is not simply uh, a philosophy or a set of propositions or ideas, though it certainly includes those things. At its heart, or we should say at its head, is a unique person. The God-man. The only mediator between God and man. And we all stand in a relationship to this unique person. Paul addresses, for example, the conflict at Corinth and the divisions that had arisen there, and he relates those conflicts and those schisms, those divisions, to Christ Himself. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly or maturely joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment or opinion. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of, of Chloe's house, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided, he asked? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he's calling their attention back to this central thing, that it is the person and work of Christ that unifies us. And when we start branching off into other factions and and I follow this person or that person, that's when we get distracted away from this central thing. When we forget who we are in Christ, who is the one Lord, then we are trying to divide the indivisible. Another conclusion must be drawn, and that is, that we can't believe in parts of Christ. We don't get to pick and choose. It's all of Christ. The divine second person of the Trinity and all of His work. It's all of Christ or none of Christ. But it's not just His unique person, but also His unique work. There is only one Savior, not many. By the way, I think this is one of the greatest offenses of the Gospel. This troubles people almost more than any other aspect of the gospel. This claim of exclusivity. Many people are happy to allow Jesus to be a Savior. 
that they are not happy to allow him to be the Savior. It's the exclusivity of Christ that they object to. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, there's the rub. We readily admit that Christ is a compassionate Savior, but because He is a compassionate Savior, He is therefore, of necessity, an intolerant Savior. History and our current culture is full of those who want to water down Jesus and to make His way just one of many ways to God. But the apostles understood that there's only one Lord. Peter, addressing the Sanhedrin, says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's this solitary Savior that provides the foundation, though, for the unity in the church. In fact, to the degree that you have other lords, that's where the division and the conflicts come in. There are, no, excuse me, there are no others who have come down from heaven to earth. He is everything. That's why Paul says, For I determined, to know nothing, uh, know, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And for in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, he writes in Colossians 2. And again in Galatians 1, If anyone tries to alter the message of Christ and His work, here's what Paul has to say about that. If you start playing with this, if you start trying to adjust it and to make it more palatable, he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Let him go to hell. That's how strong the apostles are about this exclusivity, this one Lord. Unless that, and people want to make that sound harsh or somehow unkind, but in fact it's the greatest kindness because it's the truth. He is the Savior. He's the only one that can save you. He's the only one that has the power to save you. He's the only Son of God. No one else, nothing else, no other Lord can do that. And so each of us stand in relationship to the one Lord. We're not our own. We have been bought with a price. He purchased us and there can only be one owner. And then he says, one faith. Now this is not to say that we must or that we will agree on every detail of doctrine. I do believe this is a reference to justifying faith. Paul writes to the church in Rome and says that he wants to visit them and establish them in the faith, and he summarizes the essential message of the gospel when he says this in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones 
commented on this. He said, this is the faith that was rediscovered, or rather revealed again in the Protestant Reformation. This was the faith which was preached by the Protestant fathers. This is the faith for which they had died gladly at the stake. The Protestant Reformation was a rediscovery, a new realization of the great principle that that the just shall live by faith. It was Luther's great message, justification by faith only, sola fide. It was Luther's great message, excuse me, uh, uh, that is, the word of faith. It is not faith in general, it is in this particular specific message about the way of justification. This is the one faith. Paul made the central point, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And so, here's the important point in terms of unity. We all got here the same way. We have not, indeed, we cannot add anything to this. No matter where you started, if you were relatively good or relatively bad, if you had a good upbringing or a bad upbringing, if you came from uh, a pagan world or from a Christian world, whatever your background is, frankly, is irrelevant. We are unified in this one faith. We look to the same Savior and to the same work of that Savior. It's the leveler, the equalizer, the thing that puts away all boasting and brings us in the same, through the same gate, in the same way, the same place, one faith. One baptism. Now when I mention baptism as one of the unifying things in the Christian faith, we might be tempted to object because we're aware of how much division there is on that subject, or has been in church history. Indeed, many of us have had division within ourselves over this very topic. Churches have split over the objects and the mode of baptism, but these divisions are secondary to the fact that baptism in its initiatory act is what brings us into the body of Christ. And as Paul writes these words, most of these debates and discussions were not happening and and were not an issue. Those developed later through our own confusion and party spirits. The who and the how are separate questions that emerge long after Paul's writing. We are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinitarian baptism is Christian baptism. And Jesus commissions his followers, and he tells them to go therefore into all the world and teach and disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism signifies our having been put into covenant with Christ, into him, into his body. It is one of the unifying things. It's what separates us from the world. And so to be baptized is to declare publicly, to have that formal moment, that mark, kind of like a, uh, perhaps a wedding ceremony where everybody recognizes that, that when that happens, this person is now 
to be thought of, to be considered as out of the world and now in the church. We have gone again from the kingdom of darkness and entered into the kingdom of light, where, which is where Jesus is Lord. Romans 6, 3-4, Do you not know that as many of us as, who were baptized, as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also should we walk in newness of life. We died to the old way of life. We left that behind. And as we came to Christ, we were baptized. And that baptism marked the resurrection, this new beginning, this new place. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or, or Greeks, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink of the same Spirit. Every one of us, all of us, again, came the same way. By leaving the old world, by leaving the old Adam, and by being baptized into the new Adam, that is Christ. And we have a picture of this that is a shadow, if you will, of what happened in the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, we read this, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Moses was a Christian. And Moses is a type of Christ. And they were baptized into Moses. They were following Moses. They were under the influence of Moses. Moses was their head. They went where he went. And likewise, as he represented Christ, we were baptized into Christ. And then Paul says, one God and Father of all. Here is the climax of Paul's argument about the unity of the church. In other words, the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. The Holy Spirit brings us to the Son. The Son brings us to the Father. For Christ, Peter says, also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Again, Lloyd-Jones comments on this. I really like uh, this observation. This is the key to most of our problems, he says. You got that? The key to most of your problems. I find more and more that most troubles in the Christian life are due to the fact that we are too subjective and spend too much time in looking at ourselves and feeling, as it were, our spiritual pulses. The cure for most of the ills and diseases of the soul is to look at the grand objective truth, the glory of our redemption and salvation. Were we but to realize that the three blessed persons of the Holy Trinity are intimately and actively concerned about us and our salvation, our whole situation would be entirely changed. 
The biblical teaching concerning salvation is that, even before time, in an eternal council between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our salvation was planned and purposed, and in the fullness of time it was put into operation. As members of the church, the Apostle teaches, we are in relationship to the Spirit and the Son and the Father. And this relationship makes the question of unity inevitable. Unity results from a comprehension and an understanding of the truth. It's the one God. Spirit, Son, Father. The triunity. Three persons in one Godhead. In the Bible we read that the Spirit has done certain things. We also read that the Son has done the same things and the Father has done the same things. Paul has already said, Ephesians 2.18, for through Him, that is, through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one Spirit to the Father. As we gather around the one throne to worship, this is the picture of unity. All our divisions should disappear as we look toward Him and bow before Him. Galatians 4, 6-7, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And Paul adds in our Ephesians text, who is above all and through all and in you all. He is the sovereign God. He's above all. That's what unifies us. He's above every one of us. He also works through all of his children. He animates us. He empowers us. He, wrote, he raised us from the dead. He gave us life. You and me, all of us. And He works in all of us. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. Well, if He's working in you to will and to do His good pleasure, and He's working in me to will and to do His good pleasure, and He's working in each and every one of us to will, to want to do His will and good pleasure, you think we're going to have unity? You think we're going to grow together and walk together? Now, do we still have issues and problems? Of course we do, because we still have remaining sin. That's why your struggle with sin is so critical. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't bury it. Don't hide it. Don't nurse it. We need to get it out because it's killing us. It's hurting us. It hurts every church. It hurts every family. And so I'll say more in a moment as we get ready to come to the table about that aspect of this. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled and grateful as the people of the one true and living God 
And therefore we gather in your name and call out of darkness and, 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 and we recognize we have been called out of darkness into your marvelous light to worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have gathered and assembled not to serve ourselves, but rather to serve you who is worthy of worship, to declare your greatness for who you are and for what great things you have done. We have assembled for the high privilege of worship, and we do so because you have called us your people. We have come at your call to enter into intimate communion with you and with one another. Having said under your word, we conclude with communion at your table, wherein we will renew our covenant with you as we eat and drink the body and blood of our Lord. And having been renewed, you, O Lord, will send us out again with your blessing. Grant us unity in Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. 133 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. We come again to the Lord's table, the communion table. One of the great sins of the church at Corinth was that they failed to regard the importance and the significance of the table. You ever tempted to do that? We do this every week. It would be easy for it to either become just another box to check, something else we do in the worship service. But here it was worse than that. They were just doing their own thing. Doing our own thing. That's a dangerous thing, always. 1 Corinthians 11, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. You see, above all else, each week as we prepare and come to this family table, we should be, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're doing this together as a community, as a family, around one table. We may not be casual or thoughtless about what's going on here. Jesus prayed that we would be one. He died for each of us to make us one. And remember that that starts where you are. It starts at your family, with your friends, with your neighbors. That's where it's hard, and that's where it matters. It's kind of easy, in a way, to be one here. We got dressed up. We uh, 
all drove here, came here, and these are good things. This, but this is all here designed to teach us what to do when we leave here. Not just the thing itself. This is a picture of what we're to do when we go out the doors and we ride home and we go to our house and we go to work and school and we're with other human beings. The communion of love is what it's all about in Christ. And so, let's not do what the Corinthians did, which is to disregard that. To just eat and just drink and move on. What's critical is that we discern the Lord's body, that we think about this. That we comprehend just what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. Isolation is a sin. Doing my own thing is a sin. Communion is the goal. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Lord, may we find comfort in fearing you even this day as we rest and rejoice, receive blessing from your gracious hand, and walk securely in your love. Bless now our meal and our fellowship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen.